good to be with you all here tonight. As I'm kind of getting settled up here, would you do me a favor and grab a Bible if you brought one or grab one from the seat back in front of you? If you don't have one, some of our text is going to be on the screen tonight, but I'd invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're there last week, and today we're in week two and chapter two in this series called Daniel Countercultural Living. We're looking at the six stories that make up the first half of this book called Daniel. And we're going to see Daniel and his friends living as a countercultural example in a hostile culture. So, what does it mean for God's people to engage? And thrive and live in a world and culture that is at odds with God and his kingdom. Last week, Daniel and his friends were faced with either escaping or engaging. And they chose to engage. And they didn't just survive, but they thrived in the darkest chapter of Israel's history. Last week, we gave a lot of historical background, and it's this era called the exile. Have you heard of the exile in the Old Testament? If you were here last week, you would have. The exile is this dark period of 70 years of God's judgment on these people. And it didn't look so much as judgment as we might expect. What it looked like was God removing himself and allowing Israel, his people, to experience the consequences, the consequences of their actions. Because their actions didn't look countercultural. It looked very much like the kingdoms of the world. They turned to gods that were not the true God. They didn't care for the poor. They were violent. They rejected God in his way. And so God, grieved by this, removes himself. And we see in places like Daniel chapter 9, the whole book of Jeremiah, places like Ezekiel, they're talking about how, guys, you knew this would happen if you turned from God. And so what happened was, the world superpower of the day called Babylon, which we're going to see a little bit of their people this evening. Babylon comes in and wipes out God's people. And not just God's people, they wipe out their temple. And then what happens is they take all of these people and they bring them far, far away to Babylon for them to live. So where we are in the story tonight is Daniel and his friends were some of the people that were taken in the first wave away from their land, away from their temple, away from their king, away from their customs to go to a hostile culture, the most hostile culture. And the question that hangs over the whole book is what do they do now? So imagine yourself suddenly without the land that God has promised you or perhaps a house that you bought and God blessed you with like in Florida. Houston, and you've got to go and find a new place. Then imagine yourself without the temple where they believe that God met his people. And then maybe imagine yourself like so many of us where something sweeps the rug out from under our feet and it causes us to question everything that we've heard and believed. Our faith gets wrecked and they have to go on and find a way of living and dealing now. Then imagine, well, at least we have a king, right? At least we have this leader and this symbol that God has blessed, right? Well, look on the headlines and see person after person after person who doesn't quite live up to our expectations. And you look around and you say, well, well, where do we turn? 
Or then you just look at the customs that they left, the laws that God had given them, and then they find themselves grasping and looking around and finding that this world in which they inhabit is so very unlike the way and the world that they lived in. You might not have to imagine, you might just pull up any video of any person in Syria that has lived through this civil war for the last few years. They're now living and being abused in Lebanon. Or we can even make it personal here in the transitions in our life and say, wow, they're so different, but still we can have some sense of what it looks like to live in a place that is different and difficult. And you might say, well, how on earth do we go forward? Well, the stories of Daniel that we're looking at are going to remind us each week of at least these three things. And they're on the screen here. It's that God and his kingdom are always active and eternal. God and his kingdom are always active and eternal. If you look at the very beginning of chapter 1, you see that superpower Babylon sweep in and flex their muscle and and try to wreck God's people. But then at the end of chapter 1, there's this subtle hint that says, and Daniel remained until King Cyrus. Guess what? King Cyrus was not the king of Babylon. King Cyrus is the king of Persia. So in the span that Daniel was there, one kingdom rose and one kingdom fell and the other kingdom rose and then eventually it will fall as we'll see next week. But God's kingdom is always active and eternal. God is at work amidst the bullies of history. The second thing that Daniel reminds us each week is that no matter how dark it looks, no matter how bad the headlines, the light is always winning. The light is always winning. This is what the enemy would love for you to believe when you're in those series of transitions and walking away from the wreckage of your life onto something new and scary. The enemy would love to say, well, that's it. You're done. It's over. We have to be a people, a community here in this place to meet with you and to encourage you and say, no, no, no. The light is winning. Are we going to be a people of hope? Or are we going to be like so many others out there in the world that look at North Korea, that look at our political landscape and say, what, uh, we can't do anything? No, 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 the light is always winning. Would you remind each other of that? Because you'll need reminding too. And then that person can remind you. The third thing we see each week in the book of Daniel is that we are to live as a kingdom alternative in a hostile culture. So last week, rather than escape and withdraw, what Daniel did was incarnate and say yes to some of the practices that we scratch our head and say, he did what? But then he also says no to some of these places of identity that says, no, we're supposed to be distinct from this culture. That's what we see in Daniel and his friends, and we're going to see that again tonight. But before we read our passage in the beginning of this story in chapter 2, where are we in this story? For those of you playing along at home, well, I already mentioned that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of this world superpower Babylon, took a few of the best and brightest into his court to try to make him, them, the best and brightest. So y'all remember what he did? He put them through that three-year graduate level course, learning all their stuff, learning all their practices, and that's going to be really crucial tonight. But then we also see that now they're serving along the Babylonian wise men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're counted among these wise people. But then what happens is Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in need of a wise person because he's going to have a recurring dream. 
So what we're going to see is Nebuchadnezzar has this nightmare, and then it becomes a nightmare for all these wise men because they realize that they're going to reach the end of their rope. They're going to reach the end of their knowledge and limitations, but then Daniel and his friends are going to reach out to their God. And it's going to be a reminder to us that in those places of crisis, in those places we want to believe that God is done, that we're finished, that the light is not winning, we need to do what Daniel and his friends do that we're going to see tonight. In those places of crisis, to lean into God, to respond to him, to receive from him, and ultimately our big idea is this. To do what you can and let God do what you can't. What Daniel and his friends do is everything that they can in their power. But then at some point, they just have to release and surrender and then let God do what they can't do. That's what we're going to see tonight. That's our big idea. But for now, let's read the first half of this chapter, chapter 2. Next week, we're going to look at the thrilling conclusion of our story. But I would like to just read verses 1 to 23. So that's a long stretch, but I'm still going to ask you if you're willing and able to stretch your legs. Would you stand up with me as I read this, if you're willing and able? And then I'm just going to retell the story and make some observations to see how Daniel did what he could to let God do what he can't. You with me? Y'all feeling good? Rock and roll. Let's read from Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled, and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, Now this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, "Uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and then we will interpret it. But the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among the humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. So then men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. 
Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, and He knows what lies in darkness. And light dwells with Him. I thank and praise You, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what You What we asked of you, you have made known to us the dream of the king. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Do what you can and let God do what you can't. What do I mean by this? We'll spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking that statement. But the first thing I want you to know is this. Crises have a way of reminding us that we are not all-powerful or all-knowing. Has any of you run up against a brick wall and you learned the hard way? I'll put it this way. Sometimes a crisis reminds us that we need help. I spend a lot of time around Celebrate Recovery meetings, AA meetings, NA meetings, and we hear a lot about, y'all, can y'all guess it, a rock what? Bottom. Maybe some of you in this room have experienced a rock bottom, but it's often those times that it reminds us that we need help. Sometimes God uses a crisis in order for us to get into a posture of dependence. The crisis we're exposed to is first Nebuchadnezzar's crisis. He has a crisis because he has this dream that is really wigging him out. Then he takes his crisis and then he makes a crisis for all his wise men because they're going to be put to death. By the way, sometimes isn't that what we do? My crisis becomes my wife's crisis, and then that becomes my kid's crisis, and my parent's crisis, and my friend's crisis, and my coworker's crisis, and basically I just become this walking red flare and red flag, and I'm just going to burn up everybody in my Tasmanian devil crises point. What happens is a lot of times it just spills out that way if we misdirect it. Nebuchadnezzar needs what only God can do, what no human can do. But what he does is he makes that crisis for the crisis of the wise men. And then that becomes a crisis for Daniel and his friends because they're going to get their heads cut off if they don't do the unthinkable and the impossible until they do what they can and allow God to do what only he can. But it all starts with a dream. Tonight we're going to see the pretext as to what's going to happen and the drama that ensues with his wise men. Next week, we're going to look at the interpretation of the dream. But tonight, I want to ask you this. Have you ever had a recurring dream? Has anybody in here had a recurring dream? Show of hands, how many of, it, how many of you is it a good dream? Only Robert, maybe Carla. How many of you have a recurring nightmare that troubles you? Look at this. Isn't this incredible? Now, I'm about to say something I would have never thought in my preaching career, but I'm going to reference Terminator 2 twice in one month. (laughs) I had a recurring nightmare my entire youth growing up in school. And it was this, 
that the T-1000, which was the Terminator that was way more awesome, that could make blades out of his hand, was after me. Right? In Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger becomes the good Terminator, but he's kind of broke down and clunky. He's like the 88 model of the Jeep Wrangler I had. And then the T-1000 is like the souped-up, jacked-up, awesome Jeep Wrangler of today. So I had this dream that he's out to get me, and I'm a little kid, and I'm freaked out, and every morning I would wake up panicked, and about every few months I would have this dream. And this follows me all the way through my school-age days, and I feel a lot like King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm just scratching my head saying, I hate this, I wish I wouldn't have this. Or then you might take the next step and you say, I wonder what unresolved issue it is that I have that, that keeps trying to resurface. See, what happens is, in the ancient Near East, dreams were a big deal. They're still kind of a big deal in some counseling circles, aren't they, today? But they were a big, big deal in the ancient Near East because they they really wanted to zone in because they thought that it could be an omen or perhaps a vision. And so Nebuchadnezzar really wants to figure this out because it's really freaked him out. Well, fast forward to I'm in college, and I'm working at a bookstore in Denton. And uh, we're closing up, and uh, we're talking about some crazy dreams we had. And I said, man, I have this recurring dream about the T-1000 who's about to get me, and it freaks me out. And so what's hilarious is uh, this person comes and says, oh, well, dude, we work in a bookstore. Come over here. And you know what they did? They took me to the metaphysical section, and they pulled out a dream book. Have you seen or heard of these? It's basically like, basically like horoscopes for your dreams, Right? And so they say, well, if, if this is in there, then it means this. And if this is in there, then this. And if this is in there, then that. And I said, find the T-1000. <laughs> and they couldn't because he is too bad and too horrifying to haunt your dream. They couldn't find it. And I think they read me something, and I probably would have guessed it's because I was a huge procrastinator, and I felt like everything was catching up to me and about to get me if I didn't turn this stuff in. But the idea is that people are fascinated by dreams. Well, Babylonians were fascinated by dreams too. Do you know that if Nebuchadnezzar called out his astrologers, his enchanters, his magicians, his diviners, all of these people, they were all separate jobs. They were all separate jobs, and their job was to, in various ways, interpret omens and signs, whether in the stars or even, get this, in animal intestines or in unnatural births. If you've ever seen a scary movie from the 70s that has to do with a demon child, somebody is always looking around and saying, what is the meaning of this? He has horns. This has its roots in Babylon. And they wouldn't just do these strange ways of looking at the phenomenon. They would actually go and they would pull down a book, like my friends at the bookstore would do. And so Nebuchadnezzar is doing what Nebuchadnezzar has done time and time again. He says, I've got this wild thing, and I want you to interpret it. But that's not all he did, did he? What did he do? He took it the next level, and he said, no, 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 no. Don't interpret it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You need to tell me what it is. Because I think in Nebuchadnezzar's crisis, he's finally reached this sort of rock bottom Because this dream is so troubling, so horrifying, so in need of getting figured out, as we'll see next week, because of the content, that he thinks they're pulling something over on him, and he's like, surely there's got to be some power, somewhere, something, some way that can do something about this. Let me just take a side note here and remind you that Daniel and his friends are living in a hostile culture and working for a hostile king. 
Need evidence? Hello, we just read like five verses of this dude reiterating, no, I'm going to cut you in pieces and burn your house down. Which is a total other Babylonian, ancient Near East thing to do. They want you to get the point, right? It's like that teacher that's like, if you don't turn this in, and I'm looking at you, Miss Courtney, do you drop it on your kids? No. But it's this major threat that says, you better do this. So this is a hostile king in a hostile culture. And let me just take a sidestep here and say, sometimes your hostile friends and family and people in your culture are looking for God and they don't know it. They're making a wreckage of their life. They're making a mess of their life. And they are looking for something beyond themselves, beyond what they've experienced, beyond what they can know. And the question is, will we be present and engaged enough to see this, to follow the Spirit's lead, and to walk and partner into what God was doing? Because there's even hints in the text that perhaps God gave him this dream. Perhaps God gave him this dream to get him to this place of realizing that he is not the end-all, be-all. And he used this crisis to remind him that he needs help. And the help that he seeks is in Daniel and his friends who are doing what they can, but then surrendering themselves to God to reveal the incredible things that he can do when humans can't. God makes the impossible seem possible. But right now, all Nebuchadnezzar sees and his wise men see are impossibilities. In verses 10 and 11, if you read back, when the, when the wise men finally lose their mind and say, Oh, uh, we can't do this. What they say is, no one can. And then they say, and by the way, nobody's even asked of something like that. Just imagine. Just imagine. When your friend that you're having breakfast with tells you, Hey man, I had this crazy dream. Don't do what I do and say, oh, I don't want to hear it. I don't care about your dream. I don't say that sometimes. What if they said, let me tell you about this crazy dream. They said, no, no, no. You tell me what my dream is. You would say what these people said. No way. They had heard dreams. They had had all these ways of doing dreams. But their worldview is this. There is a myth in the Babylonian lore that Daniel and his friends would have read, and they would have understood that these wise men and astrologers, they had this myth that the gods gave humanity little some knowledge. This is their worldview. It's on the screen here. The gods gave us some knowledge. Every religion of ancient days had some kind of myth in which fire and knowledge and astrology and these things were given from the gods. They were so cool that it had to have come from the gods. There's even this inkling in human hearts that says there's got to be something beyond us, right? So the gods gave us some knowledge and then the gods gave us some practices, but then look what he said in verse 11. Are you looking at it? I'm not. I need your help. What does he say in verse 11? I'm really not looking at it. I need to look at it. No one can reveal it to the king except who? The gods. So they have this inkling that there are things that we can't do and that somewhere something beyond us has to. But then what do they say? Do you see it? But they don't, what? They don't live among the humans. I think we butt up against another worldview of today where people said, I don't know if there is a God, but if there is, he's probably out to lunch. Are you with me? 
Because look at Harvey, look at Irma, look at Syria, look at North Korea, look at down the street. We were downtown with some homeless folks today. You were in Garland serving people who didn't have clothes. Look at all this filth. God must be out to lunch. So the question is, how do they, the wise men, how do they, your friends and co-workers, might respond out of this worldview when you butt up against something, some crisis, some rock bottom that is beyond yourself? How do you respond? Well, I guess that's that. There's nothing we can do. There's no one that can fix it. There's no bright light at the end of the tunnel. Have you heard this? Have you sensed this? Have you seen this in these people you love? But then look at Daniel's reality. His counter-cultural worldview. The God of heaven is not somewhere out there, but the God of heaven is the God of earth. And Daniel and his friends had every reason to say God has abandoned us. He is not caring about this earth. Why? Because we don't have our land. We don't have our temple. We don't have our king. We don't have our customs. We've lost everything. They had every reason in the world to say it. But you know what Daniel does? He reaches out to this God because he doesn't believe he's out to lunch. He believes he's even in the thick of it. So Daniel's reality is this, that the God of heaven is the God of earth. The other thing that you see is that God is accessible and God is active. And isn't that so different than what the wise men said? Oh, they don't live among the humans. Isn't that so different? Are you with me? Can we fast forward to the New Testament when a name of Jesus is God what? Say it louder. With us. And God gives us of himself is the third thing in their reality. He gives us the spirit. He gives us gifts. If you have your Bible open, flip a page over to Daniel 4.9. Fast forward, spoiler alert, Nebuchadnezzar is going to see their God at work. And he's going to say of Daniel, the spirit of the gods is in him. Hello? The pagan, hostile, violent, threatening, crisis king will say of Daniel, God is with him. How many of us, meeting people who are at the end of our ropes, would be present enough to be with them and to meet with them and to even perhaps introduce them to the God who can do something when their worldview says nothing can be done? Are you with me? So how does Daniel respond out of that worldview? The God with us worldview. How might you respond if you actually believed that God was with you every day? How would it change your outlook? How would it change your mind to wake up every morning, look yourself in the mirror, and say, I am one in whom Christ dwells? How would it change your mind to when the crisis comes, you look at the issue and you say, I am a citizen of the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world looks broke down and it's crumbling, but I am a citizen of the unshakable kingdom of God. And my king cannot be shaken. And my king is an ever-present help in trouble. And my king is God with us, not God without us. He is in the midst of it. And there is always hope because there is always God. But we don't live like this. That's why we look at Daniel. 
So when Daniel faces the crisis, you know what he does? He bails and hightails it out of Babylon and goes and lives in a cave for the rest of his days. No, uh, sorry, that's a different, no, he didn't do that. What does he do? Verses 14 to 16, Daniel goes head on in confidence to go and speak to the chief executioner. Do you know that I read this week that the word they use in the Greek Old Testament version was translated the chief butcher? Dude, how bad to the bone is that for this guy, Arioch, to be? I'm Arioch, nice to meet you. I'm the chief butcher of the Babylonian kingdom. And you're like, dude, I'm not shaking your hand, bro. The chief butcher, he goes and talks to him, and then because he's a citizen of the unshakable kingdom of God, later he'll praise God that when kingdoms rise and kingdoms go, God never changes. He's a citizen of the unshakable God, so he can go look at that king in the face and say, no, 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 we need more time. We need more time. And somehow he gets it. This is how Daniel reacts. Verses 14 to 16, it says, He reacted with wisdom and tact. Hello, how often do I react to crisis with wisdom and tact? Hello? I am a sky is falling type of guy. But the problem is my wife is more a sky is falling type of girl than I am. So what I do is I fake it and I'm a terrible liar. So I'm a sky is falling guy who's a terrible liar. So we very rarely have wisdom intact. But we'll see later on what God has, he gives to us. And that is wisdom and peace and power. But how would you handle a crisis better next time if you did what Daniel did? First of all, you went to the source. Isn't that cool? Daniel didn't go gripe with all the other wise men that he had been trailing with for the last three years. He didn't go gripe with them and say, can you believe this dude? We're going to get killed. Probably like right now. He's on his way. Chief Butcher is knocking on the door. No, no, no. He went to the source. How often do we want to dance around and talk to everybody else except the person we need to talk to? And you know what Daniel did? He was thinking of others. Did you see that? He went to talk with them and said, hey, will you spare me and the others? Later on, we'll get a hint that he actually also meant those pagan kings who were looking at sheep guts and the stars. He cared about them, not just the guys he liked. How would we handle a crisis better next time? By going to the source, thinking of others, but then secondly, or thirdly rather, the most important thing, actually reaching out to God and praying about it. Look what Daniel does. He does what he can, first of all. He reacts to the crisis by going face to face. But then he does what he can by reaching out to God. He says, I've done everything I could do over here. And now I need to surrender and place myself before God and let him do what I can. Can I just get real with y'all? Let's, we can go back to that, Hannah. Let me get real with y'all. One of the things that I try to do personally that I have a mentor, a coach that reminds me of this all the time is like I'll spew and vent all my guts and then I'll say, where's the red flags? And he'll say, no, you, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And then Amy and I, when we're dealing with family, when we're dealing with difficult relationships, when we're talking and communicating, we got to say, okay, what is left undone? Like we can't leave this until I've done everything that I can do. I think it's Romans 12, 18 that says, strive to live at peace with everyone as much as it's up to you. 
Can you write that verse down and check that it is actually Romans 12, 18? Do everything you can do in order that when you look back, you said, yes, there's no more red flags. I've done everything I can do. And then do this. Okay, God, this is all I can do. Would you do what I can't? This is what Daniel does. But you know what? He doesn't just do it alone. He responds with his friends. And he says, look, we have got to plead to God to have mercy for this mystery. There are things that you don't know. There are next steps you don't know which one to take. There are people and reactions you don't know. So you need to actually do everything you can and then turn and say, now, God, I need help. But he did it with his community. Do you see that? There's a story of a person who used to be a part of our church, but I didn't ask her about doing this story, so I won't say who. But she was a part of this college ministry, and one of the teams went overseas into a difficult place to do some work loving and caring for people who needed loving and caring for. But they were in one of those countries where when they were trying to travel and trying to move, it was faced with a lot of corruption and danger. And so their team, half a world away, runs up against some authorities that were containing them, detaining them. They were detaining them. They weren't letting them leave. They weren't letting them be safe. They were threatened. They were freaked out. But all I know is from this person somewhere stateside in college wakes up at 2 a.m., And she woke up at 2 a.m. and she felt compelled to pray for the other people who had gone half a world away in her team. And so she prays and she prays and she says, that was weird. And then she went to sleep. And then the next morning, she kind of hangs out with some of the friends the next couple days. And they realize that about four or five of them woke up at 2 a.m. and prayed the same way. And not until the team returned safely from the trip that they said this wild thing happened Tuesday at 8 o'clock our time. We were detained. We were threatened. We didn't think we could get anywhere. We had tried to sweet talk them. We had tried to do this. Nothing worked until somehow, some way, inexplicably, we just are able to get up and go. And all of a sudden, what everything was an issue is no longer an issue. And of course, you know what happens because God works in crazy and powerful and mysterious ways that we want to try to rationalize and we want to try to explain and we want to try to replicate in our own lives like Shauna was reminding us. We want the miracle always, but sometimes they do happen and we've got to name it. And what happened is this college team looked and said, oh my gosh, God is at work and the light is winning. Oh my gosh, God is active and eternal. He's not out to lunch. God makes the impossible possible, but we've got to keep prayer at the center of our community because we can go and do wonderful things at the closed closet. We can do wonderful things in our relationships, but if our relationships and our ministry and our mission and our worship and our preaching is not bathed in prayer, then we're just playing church. And so in our communities, in our neighborhood groups, on Wednesdays, I want to tell you that I feel burdened by this. If we are not a community bathed in prayer, we are a supper club, not a community on mission. And so in our communities, in our neighborhood groups, we say we want at least three things. We want fellowship because that is a key component of what it looks like to be God's people. When you get a snapshot of the church in Acts chapter 2, they were eating and hanging out and enjoying each other's company. 
There's got to be this fellowship. The second thing we need in our neighborhood groups is some kind of intentional conversation, right? And that takes shape all different ways. And I love this about our groups because in all of our different groups, it looks different. But we need some kind of intentional conversation about your life and your life with God. And then thirdly, we need prayer. Because at the end of the day, are we living together as a distinctly kingdom community? Or are we just another neighborhood group alliance? Or just some other neighborhood functional thing for our social stuff, not for kingdom stuff? Are we living distinctly as a kingdom community? Daniel and his friends in a hostile culture were living as a kingdom community. And they sought God and they opened themselves up to be acted upon by him. We got to do what we can in order to let God do what he can. And what they did was they talked and then they prayed and they waited. They waited, they waited, they waited. So finally, what they do is they reach out to God and then they receive from God. Because here's what we've talked about for time and time again the last couple weeks. Is that, is that it's really hard for God to give us what we need if we don't turn down the noise and slow down our pace. God can do whatever he wants to do. I don't want to limit God, but I just want to tell you that most times God speaks and transforms us in those spaces of turning down and slowing down. And speak to all these people in the room that can point to a time where they said, yeah, 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 when I really sensed God was up to something, it was most often in those times where I had this clarity to be before him and to engage with the presence of God. It's not a causal type. It's always going to be like that. But I'm telling you that most times it's what, it, it's what happens. So Daniel receives from God this impossible thing, and that is the dream, the contents of the dream of what Nebuchadnezzar had. No human, no astrologer could have done that, but God did. Why? Because he was able to hold his hand out in prayer, in stillness, in silence, and receive from the Lord. I don't want to oversimplify it. But can we receive or hear from God today? I hope you're shaking your head yes. Because I'll tell you, more than one commentary I read this week said no. That's why we have the Bible. I said, man, that's funny because in the Bible, it says we have the mind of Christ. That's funny because in the Bible, it says we have the Holy Spirit of God who Jesus says is our helper who will what? Give us words, who will give us comfort, who will give us all of these things that is not just contained within the pages of ink and paper. So to say that we only have scripture is to say, here's your box, God, live there. I don't need a relationship with you. I just need some knowledge about you that I can get from Bible college. And I know I'm overstating it. I know I'm oversimplifying it. But I want you to catch a vision of your life as an active, dynamic, ongoing relationship with the living God who doesn't just want to be talked to, but wants to talk to you. And so here's the thing. It is somewhere in between an intuition and an audible voice. But I don't even want to limit him to that. 
I want you to know, dear people, if Jesus Christ is in you, you have the mind of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God who is working and working and working and forming and trying to get you to shut up so he can get a word in edgewise. I don't know if the Holy Spirit says shut up. But he's trying to get you to shut up. So I'll say shut up so that we can help get us all to shut up. <laughs> Amy Kahn sent me something today that I wanted to read. And then we'll close. Because we also got to see how Daniel responds to God when he receives from God. Amy sent this to me. She's at a lake house this week. Um, she is trying to live out what we've been barking at, and that's doing this work of rhythm and rest. And so i got to be okay with the fact that sometimes if you're resting in God's presence and it means you're not at church, amen, hallelujah, go do you, okay? You have permission from Pastor Kathy, Pastor Bud, and Pastor Adam to go and live in a model of work and rest. And you can say no to us, okay? But Amy sent me this. It was from stillness that the power seemed to arise within me to deal with the crisis. This is something she read from a person named Hannah Whittle Smith. It was from the stillness that power seemed to arise to deal with the crisis. And that very quickly brought it to a successful resolution. But it was during this crisis I effectively learned that my strength is to sit still. And she says, it is a living stillness born of trust. You know what Daniel did? Everything he could. And then he had a living stillness born of trust that God could do what he can't. And if you read verses 20 to 23, as we just did, you see Daniel saying, thank you, God. You've saved our lives. And he says in verse 20, wisdom and power are his. But in verse 23, he says, but he's given me wisdom and power. God is not content to hoard it all to himself. He wants to give it to you. But would you see that in his presence, there is power and wisdom. This is James 1.5. Write it down and listen again to our series in James. He says, if anybody needs wisdom, ask. And it will be given to you because God doesn't measure out the cup when he's pouring it out. But then later in James chapter 4, he says, hey, you don't have because you don't ask. And that ate my lunch this week. How much do I not have because I've not asked and sat? But Daniel receives from God. He reaches out from God. And he receives from him wisdom and power that were God's given to him. Not the gods of Babylon, not the wise men of Babylon, but the person in whom God is at work and with. So as we close, I want to leave you with these questions. We've got to learn to reach out and receive from God and then respond to him appropriately. So the questions I want you to wrestle with this week and write down is this. What has God done by his power for you? What has God done in you? And what has God done through you? These are on the screen here to help you. What has he done by his power for you, in you, and through you that you couldn't have done by yourself?
Because I think it takes practice paying attention to God at work in our lives. And tomorrow I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say, in this last year or in this summer, what has he done for me, in me, and through me that I couldn't have done by myself? And then the second question is, what has he given you, revealed to you, or removed from you that you could not have done yourself? And when you answer these and when you sit in the presence of God, mulling over your real life to see how God was really at work, affirm it, celebrate it, and ask him to do it again. So may we be people who do what we can to sit with him, to reach out to him, to engage our culture, but then to get out of the way and let him do what we can't. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this space and this culture to gather together as your people and to be present to your presence. We ask, God, that you would continue to work on us this week and that we would pay attention to you in our day-to-day lives, folding laundry, going to work, driving in the car, talking with our friends, our family. We pray that we would be present to your presence and allow you to do what only you can do. Amen. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Go in peace.